It's Wednesday, March 9th, 2022, and this is KBIA's Views of the News. Our weekly roundtable on media behaviors comes to you from the studio at the Reynolds Journalism Institute. I'm Amy Simons, and I'm joined today by my colleagues Kathy Kiley and Ernest Perry. On our program this week, moving into the third week of Russia's invasion of Ukraine, giving ink to an autocrat. We'll talk about the Atlantic's profile of the Saudi crown prince, Mohammed bin Salman. And journalists like to call themselves storytellers, but new research shows it erodes their credibility. We'll explain. There's a lot more that hopefully we'll get to today before our half hour is up, but we're going to start with access to information and Russia's media blackout. Putin's new fake news law is now going further than anything he's done in his 22 years in power, including blocking Facebook and major news outlets. And anyone who spreads what the Kremlin considers to be false information about the war in Ukraine faces up to 15 years in prison. Last week, we were talking about how there's access to other news outlets and people in Russia were going to be able to get information from the West, from BBC, from CNN, from The New York Times. All three of those organizations having now suspended their efforts there, the Washington Post removing bylines. Yeah, it, you know, I'm, to be honest with you, I'm not surprised because Putin is an old-style Soviet KGB operative. And he's pretty much laid the groundwork to do exactly this. And, and it's just, it's full on now. It's like, we control the media, we're going to control the message. Uh, we're going to make it difficult for for outside news outlets to be able to cover not only what's going on in terms of the the what's happening on the Russian side of the war, but also what's happening internally, domestically, because the sanctions and other things may be having a crippling effect. But he doesn't want that information to get out there. So this is a the most effective way to do it. Yeah, not only is he an old-style uh, KGB, Soviet-style uh, dictator, but he's also a desperate one. And I think, to, to your point, Amy, I think people, there will be people who will be able to get Western news. If you have a VPN, you can still do that. But the big development here is that Western outlets are pulling their reporters out. And I think they're doing it because a desperate Vladimir Putin would not be above taking somebody hostage, effectively. Because if you say, we, there's already a WNBA player who has been nabbed on supposed drug charges, an American, um, and I, I think uh, what a lot of these news organizations are worried about is that one of their correspondents would be accused and charged and arrested for uh, disseminating fake news, meaning, meaning the truth, and then, yeah, and, and then put behind bars, and right. then you have another job for Bill Richardson, you know, the right. professional hostage uh, Negotiator, policer. yeah. <laughs> and, and, I, and honestly, I don't know this, but I would not be surprised if uh, members of the U.S. government were urging news organizations to lay low because they don't want to have to worry about that on top of everything else. No, I agree with you. And, and Again, you know, you're talking about a regime that's that has been directly linked to the deaths of people outside. I mean, poisonings and all sorts mm -hmm. of other things. So for anybody them, who criticizes anyone them. who criticize exactly anyone who criticizes them. And they've been doing this for years. So they're trying to control the message. 
as it relates to that message getting inside to the citizens of Russia because they want to be able to say, this is this is what is really going on. Believe us and not what's behind the curtain. Yeah, and he's desperate. You know, I mean, as these sanctions start to really take hold and squeeze his people, and the longer his forces are bogged down in Ukraine, he's just going to get more and more frustrated. And so I think a desperation move, like trying to get back at the West by taking a British or an American correspondent and saying, oh, fake news, and now we're throwing you, we're sending you to Siberia for 25 years. It then puts those governments in a really tough situation. So, Ernest, put this in some historical context for a second. If we were to go back to uh, the height of the Cold War, never really got to this point, did it? Where American and British and other Western outlets were withdrawing from in terms of the press? Yeah. Well, I mean, back during the Cold War, you had press coverage, but it was it was highly structured mm-hmm. in terms of what you could send out. Okay. I mean, you could go and gather information, but 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 they made it difficult for the press to be able to tell certain stories or to even be able to gather news in certain ways. So you had a lot of people following you. You had you had people who wanted to, t- to tell you stories, give you information, but they were concerned about their own safety and whether or not they were gonna be brought up on espionage charges. And then all that opened up. So now what Putin's trying to do is he's trying to, to, to basically pull all that back in and rein it back in and go back to that. If you're seen talking to a a correspondent from 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 the West, you could be hauled in by whatever the equivalent of the KGB is now and sent to to some gulag in, in Siberia somewhere. He's trying to, 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 to create that kind of environment again. I think the difficulty for him in being able to do that is the fact that, as Kathy pointed out, if you have a VPN, if you have these other means by which to get information out and get information in, then it's going to be difficult for him to try to recreate that. But I, I get a sense that that's what he's trying to do. Oh, recreate. yeah, he's trying to make Soviet-style dictatorship great again. Yeah. So let me ask you this, Kathy. It's one thing for journalists from the West who are able to leave and to set up in the region in other ways. What about those independent journalists who are in Russia, who are trying to maintain a a free press in Russia. What are they up against right now? Well, you know, I think it's very difficult for them. And uh, I am sure that some of them are trying to uh, get out if they can, uh, so that they can uh, do work in exile, which may be the best way to do it. I think, um, as you know, as we said last week, I think the decision by a number of these independent organizations to shut down was a really important strategic move because rather than, and not everybody has done that, um, Dmitry Muratov, the guy who won, shared the, the Nobel, Nobel Peace Prize, Prize with uh, Maria Reza, it, they are still operating, but they are purging their archives of, um, of stories. And so I think there are a lot of people who didn't want to do that, and they're kind of trying to call you-know-what on Putin by saying, okay, if we can't report the right way, we're not going to do it at all. So purging the archives, that kind of takes me into another kind of area and how we've talked in the past about that, like the project we have here, that idea of dodging the memory hole and the danger that comes kind of from that Orwellian situation of having to delete that that archive, that first draft of history. 
it's a means of survival. Well, I mean, and that's been attempted before. Yeah. I mean, a lot of that was going on during the Cold War and even you know, going further back than that, where the victors are trying to write history. The problem with that is that there's always going to be someone who knows exactly what happened. And eventually that narrative of the story is going to get out. And when it does, it disrupts not only the way history is looked at, but also disrupts the way in which the, the, the current culture looks at that and reacts to it. We see some of that when we start talking about, uh, when we talk about social justice issues and when we talk about you know how slavery is looked at now as opposed to the way slavery was looked at previously, you're gonna have some of those same kinds of things happen when it comes to this. I mean, think about it. Think about the way that the Cold War was looked at prior to uh, uh, the opening of the West, the falling of the Berlin Wall and the way in which the Cold War is looked at now. So, and, I mean, and there were some great examples of that at the True False Film Festival yeah. just this last weekend. A couple of movies that look at, uh, including one uh, that looks at uh, Lithuania's uh, independence movement um, and had incredibly powerful echoes to what's going on today. But those there were incredible bits of archival footage that were incorporated into those movies that I'm sure people at the time wish had been buried and eliminated and they weren't, so they, they survived. Yeah. So bringing up Lithuania, um, one of the other things that we can look at here too is that struggle for a free press to really take hold in a lot of the former Soviet states, somewhere it's kind of sort of had a little bit of an opportunity to grow. Then you have uh, countries like Kazakhstan, where it never really got that foothold. Talk for a minute too. I mean, we've had lots of conversations about um, the Kiev Post, the Kiev Independent, What there? what's happening on the other side of kind of this conflict at the moment and maintaining a free and independent press in, in Ukraine. Yeah, well, they're just trying to stay alive. Oh. And um, and that's really difficult, you know, when your, uh, your entire infrastructure's been disrupted. I think, you know, when something like this happens, um, I think it sets back the cause of democracy, of which the free press is a major pillar, because um, it's, gonna, it's gonna cause people to think twice uh, before they launch that new publication or they decide to uh, devote their the next chapter of their career to something that is so pro-democratic because what it says is, is this really stable? Is this really going to last? Am, am I going to be safe? Is my family going to be safe? So I think um, uh, even if it's a short war, it's done really uh, terrible damage um, to institutions. Yeah. Well, I, th you know, I think one of the things, when it comes to independent journalism, one of the good things that I'm seeing right now is the independent journalism that's being done around how are the sanctions, what are the impact of the sanctions? The fact that you have independent journalists who are out there, not necessarily on mainstream, but the independent journalists who are tracking oligarchs mm -hmm. to, to see whether how these sanctions hurting them, you know, tracking their boats, tracking their banking, tracking tracking all of those things. I mean, that's independent journalism that's that's on uh, coming out of the West and saying, we want to see in real time how these sanctions are who's, impacting. Who's looking to sell soccer teams? 
Yes, looking to sell soccer teams. I mean, all of that. I mean, th- these are the kinds of stories that you've never really seen when you start talking about war. We spend a lot of our time covering what's on the ground and who's being impacted. And, and that coverage is being done, but you've got this other coverage about how the economic sanctions that are being imposed on the West is having a crippling effect, not only on the Russians domestically, but how it's also impacting those Russians who are living abroad. Yeah, the lifestyles of the rich and infamous. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) So, you know, as we've gotten through almost two weeks of this, we're moving into week three. We've seen some of the storylines that are emerging. We've also seen here in the United States that three major networks have begun to pull back a little bit on their coverage. MSNBC has stopped its live overnight coverage, putting Dateline repeats back on. There was a piece, too, that... Um, was in one of the TV blogs that I read every morning about really not even leading with Ukraine anymore. Do we think that on the network news level, like, are we just getting tired of it? Is our attention span that short? I don't know if it's the the, the attention span as it is. Is it February sweeps are over? They're bringing their stars back home? Or am I being too cynical? Well, I mean, I think you have, I think it's resources. Okay. I think it's worrying about whether or not one of your correspondents who's there on the ground is going to is going to you know get hit with live fire mm-hmm. uh i think it's the you don't want the public to get numb by the everyday uh uh images of, of the war uh so I, I i think that they're trying to figure out a way to calibrate how to cover this war so that it, it doesn't get overexposure to the point where people just tune it out. And then it, it becomes it becomes what we saw in Afghanistan, what we saw in Iraq. And I think that they're thinking about this a little bit more strategically in how they're going to cover it. That's just my opinion. I think that um, it is a balancing act. And, um, you know, I think actually 24-7 news is not necessarily healthy uh, because there aren't major developments uh, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And so I think kind of uh, checking in every now and then is is a healthier way to do it. I also think, you know, some of it may be a cynical audience building thing, but some of it may be public service. I mean, I saw a column, I think it was today, in the Columbia Tribune, uh, it was a syndicated column about how do you protect your children mm-hmm. uh, from the war. And I think that's a very legitimate concern. I mean, you are seeing some pretty horrific images uh, live on television. And um, and that's a tough thing for, for young children. And I can see where parents would be worried about that. So I think it's – I'm, I'm not totally critical of that decision because I think, first of all, news should be a new development – and secondly, uh, you know, we don't want, I, I think over concentrating on it becomes almost prurient, you right. know, right, and, right. Uh, and, and so we, there's 24-7 news. How do we fill that mm-hmm. 24-7 at a time when there is a big crisis, but it's not the only news in the world? Yeah, I know one story I would like to see done or at least done well is something about gas prices and how, as we talk about some of the effects of the sanctions, how that affects us here at home too. And maybe dispelling some of those, you know, myths that this is just Joe Biden being Joe Biden and gas is going to be really expensive, that this is part of that process. And 
that's going to happen. One of the stories, too, um, that really started to catch fire over the last week or so, and I thought about bringing this up on the program last week, but it was still kind of that social media rumor phase at that point. Um, and allegations, too, that it was being brought up to create divisiveness, to divide people. Um, and it was Russian bots behind it. And people were, were dispelling what was being reported. But there has been um, a lot of reporting lately about how race has factored into the evacuations in Ukraine as well. And how um, black and brown people, immigrants, students, tourists have not been able to leave and to evacuate to other countries or be accepted into other countries in the region in Europe at the rate that white people have been. Yeah, that that story came out early on, and I think it was I think if I remember correctly, it was independent journalists mm-hmm. who were actually exposing that, and 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 then when the, when the, the main, mainstream networks caught hold of it, they were able to actually document it and see it happening in real time, and I. Uh, and I think what you're what you're seeing is that you know these countries are saying, wait a minute, we have enough immigrants here. We we don't we we don't want to have any more immigrants from from Africa from other from these other countries. And in doing so, they're basically saying, look, you know, we'll take uh, we'll take white uh, who people who look who, like who, us people mm-hmm. who look like us who are coming in. But you you know you may be Ukrainian, but you know, or you may be a student, or you may be this, or you may be that, but you're not us. So, so you're gonna have to wait, or you're gonna have to find a way to go to another country. But we're not gonna allow you to stay here. That becomes a problem, not only for those countries that are refusing them, but it also becomes a problem for Ukraine because eventually, at some point, there'll be a, a, a Ukrainian state. At least I believe there will be a Ukrainian state. What happens to those people at that point? Okay, so. We're going to go from Putin to the Saudi crown prince, Mohammed bin Salman. Last week, the another member of the dictator's club, which <laughs> seems to be dominating the world these days. <laughs> there are a couple we haven't talked about yet yes. today. Um, last week, The Atlantic published its cover story, Graham Wood's lengthy profile of MBS. And when I say lengthy, I mean it. That thing is 12,000 words. I needed several sittings to get through it. And the audio version that the website has up on top says it will take an hour and a half for it to be read to you. Wood talked to the Crown Prince about a variety of topics, and it seemed nothing was off limits. He did ask him if he ordered the 2018 killing of... Jamal Khashoggi and the crown prince denied it again. Mind you, the Biden administration has confirmed that he did approve that killing. This is complicated or maybe it's not. Should the Atlantic have offered him that big of a megaphone to continue to say things that have been proven to be untrue? Well, I mean, you can you can look at it both ways. I mean, did they challenge him? I think on some of the issues they did. I mean, I didn't read all of it. I read ex- excerpts of it as much as I could get through. Uh, twelve, yeah, twelve thousand words. words. Yeah, I, I I think that was a little bit much. They could have cut some a lot of that. Uh, but I do think that there were some some parts of that that did need to be highlighted. It 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 does amaze me that. 
you know, that, that he, actually I take that back, it doesn't amaze me that he's, he's basically coming out saying, no, I didn't know, I didn't even know the evidence refutes that. Uh, but there are other things within the piece that uh, I do think warrant uh, 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 the coverage, but at that length, I don't think so. I, I think this is uh, the piece that you posted, Amy, um, from the Washington Post that really slams this. I agree with wholeheartedly. I mean, I think uh, it's true that uh, they did ask him uh, the questions that everybody would have wanted asked. Um, and it is true that it is not a, a, a puff piece. I mean, yeah. all of the uh, unseemly, uh, unsavory aspects of uh, the Crown Prince's career are brought up. But by giving that a cover story to somebody who is a murderer, um, you and there's kind of a, there's something about the tone of that piece that is kind of like, gee whiz, we got inside the house and looky here. Um, and it, it seems... Oh, really too naive uh, for for this kind of thing. Like, look at us. We got here. And the thing I'm looking for, uh, you know, the Saudi government spends millions of dollars every quarter hiring U.S. firms to polish its image in this country. And I looked, not there yet, because these reports uh, come out about six months later, but I guarantee you we're going to see one of those uh, firms at least having buttered up the Atlantic to do this piece, and you know they fly them to Saudi Arabia. They get to live like crown princes, and uh, it, 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 it there was something about it that it reminded me of a Vanity Fair story about a celebrity like Tom Cruise or something, and it just I think it's the way they presented it. That's the thing that bothered me too was the not so much what the words were the way it was presented came across as if you know we've got this big splash and and this is something that's going to elevate us and and I'm like mm, really you know yeah yeah Kathy hope our audience becomes smarter and do things a little bit better. We talk about also being um, teachers of, of media literacy and news literacy. So you said that these reports are out there uh, and you were looking through them to see, and it could take some time, but if members of our audience wanted to go look for some of that information too, where, how could they find that? FARA.gov, FARA.gov, ForeignAgentRegistrationAct.gov. It's a website of the um, Department of Justice. I am going to warn your readers uh, that it is not easy to navigate, okay. and I think there are reasons for that. Um, but uh, we will look into it, and if anybody, um, you know, we have, I have, a, I trained one of our undergraduates um, to uh, be a watchdog on this website. And what's really interesting about FARA.gov, and this touches actually on uh, our earlier discussion point, uh, FARA.gov requires any organization that lobbies for a foreign interest to provide very, very detailed information on what they're doing in this country to advance uh, that foreign interest's um, interest, and including media contacts, much more detailed than you would have to provide if you were lobbying for a domestic firm. Guess which way the Russian gas company, Gazprom, files. They don't file under the Justice Department. They file as a domestic company, and so they don't have to disclose as much about what they're doing to because influence they list their domestic, their, their US domestic policy. office. Mm-hmm. As opposed yes, to exactly. Their, their foreign, and there are a lot of companies yes. that do that. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So 
One of the things we tend to pride ourselves on as journalists and as educators is that we're telling stories. We find real people, we call them central compelling characters, and we humanize complex issues facing our society so that our audiences can better connect with them. We seek to entertain while we inform and try to keep an audience's attention and show them why they should care. Well, According to research out of the University of Cincinnati, roughly 80% of US-based journalists include the word storyteller in their Twitter bio. And it's an identity that participants in this study that was done were more likely to agree that the stories that they were telling were likely to be biased, that the sites where they were published were going to tend to sensationalize or trivialize stories, and that there wasn't likely to be a fair portrayal of everyone in it. So this one stood out to me because we talk about the news literacy, the media literacy. Made me kind of wonder if we need to stop and listen to the public a little bit and, and notice that they don't like that name Storyteller. They think it means we're making something up. They associate it too closely with fiction and fairy tales and not truth. Yeah. Uh, uh, to me, I, I looked at that and I went like, well, this could be semantics. You know? Well, it is semantics. Yeah, yeah, it but be, is it yeah. semantics where we can build better trust if we think about it? Well, again, I go back to that trust, really. Okay. I mean, they've never really trusted us. Fair. You know, yeah. we, we keep going to this thing where we get, well, we're going to build trust. How can you build something, you know? And to me, it's one of those things where, okay, whose story are you telling? So we, we talk about these characters, right? We get to choose the character. True. Right? Uh, and oftentimes we choose a character that fits our narrative and not necessarily the authentic narrative. And that's when we start running into problems, when we don't really look at the stories holistically and let the stories be driven by the characters, the people, as opposed to what we imagine or what we think those 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 people or those characters should be. And that's when we run into problems. And it's hard for us to try to, you know, defend that. Yeah. The idea, the art, the craft behind uh, that term is a very legitimate thing because we all know we identify with people. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and so looking for stories of people to tell that illustrate a larger point is, um, it's a genuine, it's something we do a lot. I think it's a good technique. But I think the reason a lot of people use the term storyteller is because the term journalist, which is a great term that I'm very proud to be called a journalist, but it has been so deeply politicized mm -hmm. that um, people are afraid to use it. And, um, you know, on the subject of news literacy, uh, we had we helped a local library here, the Daniel Boone Regional Library, spin up a uh, news literacy program, and they went out, and it was very well received. Mm -hmm. uh, but one of the librarians told me um, they did get some pushback, and I asked him to tell me more, and he said, well, it turns out that facts are a trigger word. Really? And so, okay, now I want to hear more. <laughs> so when you say we, we want to tell you, to have you evaluate the facts, some people immediately think it's political. So do we have Kellyanne Conway to thank for this? I think possibly, yeah. I think that's a good call.
Yeah, I mean that that doesn't I, surprise I, I, me. I'm drawing that conclusion that, yeah. that that connection back to alternative facts yeah. from a couple of years yeah. ago. Sorry, that was a little obscure well, pop no. culture reference. You know, I, I, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, I, again, this goes back to the semantics part: storytelling, journalists, facts. I mean, all of it is has been politicized and and turned around, and that becomes a problem. Yeah, paging George Orwell. Yeah. Mm. That's the second Orwellian reference in today's show. <laughs> well, we are just about out of time for today. I'd like to thank you for spending the last half hour with us. Um, you can read more about each of the topics we talked about on today's program on our links blog. You can find that under both the programs and podcast tabs at kbia.org. There's a lot more information there about the stories we did talk about today. There's also some information there about a story I've been wanting to talk about for the last two weeks, and we haven't had an opportunity to do that. The idea of anchors and reporters, black women wearing their natural hair on air and um, the revolutionary statement that they say that that's making, which is very timely because of a bill in the Missouri legislature right now about uh, hair discrimination. And so hopefully we can get that in next week. We'll try again. The third time will be a charm. Um, you can also download our podcast anywhere you get your podcast downloads. We're on iTunes. We're on Stitcher. We're all over the place. Like us on Facebook. Follow us on Twitter. Our handle there is at views on KBIA. You can watch and listen to the program again. Leave comments, questions, get a preview of what we'll talk about next week and more. Thanks to RJI's Travis McMillan for directing today's show. Aaron Hay for handling the audio. Tim Pilcher composed that theme music you hear right now. I'm Amy Simons. We'll be back with you again next week for another edition of Views of the News.